Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. As you're seated, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Like us to take a few weeks and really look at the stewardship of the gospel, the stewardship of the truth, and looking at the power of the gospel. That our desire is that the gospel will go forth. John Harper was a man that is worth being familiar with, a man worth emulating. He was born into a Christian home in Scotland in 1872. He came to know the Lord as his personal Savior when he was 14 years old. And from that time on, he he had a real desire to tell other people about Jesus. As a 17-year-old, he would preach on the streets in the, the village where he was, and he would passionately plead with people to be reconciled to God. For six years, he worked in a mill during the day and would, would preach on the street corners during his free time. Then the pastor of the Baptist Pioneer Mission in London took Harper in. And Harper devoted his time to evangelism, his, his energies to sharing the gospel, that, those that were unsaved. In, in September of 1896, John Harper became the first pastor of Paisley Road Baptist Church. He began with 25 people, and when he resigned 13 years later, the church had over 500 in attendance. During that time, Harper had been married, had a beautiful little girl, Annie, called Nana, and also became a widower. Because of his zeal for evangelism, he was invited to speak at a series of meetings at Moody Church in Chicago. The meetings went very well, and so later he made another trip from England to Moody Church. It was in April of 1912 that John Harper and his daughter Nana, now six years old, along with an older cousin, Jesse, boarded a ship at Southampton, England for the voyage to America. Well, on that voyage, about midnight one night, John woke up his daughter to tell her there had been an accident. The ship had struck an iceberg. And although another ship was coming to assist for a precaution, he, he wanted to make sure she was safe. He wrapped her Nana in a blanket and put her and her cousin into a lifeboat. So he kissed his daughter and handed her to the crew member who put her in lifeboat number 11. John prepared to wait for the other ship. The tragic end of that ship is well known. They were on the Titanic. But what happened to John Harper is known because several months later, Aguila Webb, a young Scotsman, stood up in a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, and recounted that fateful night. As Webb hung to a piece of floating debris in the frigid waters, a wave brought John Harper close to him. And Harper called out, man, are you saved? And Webb replied, I am not. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then the waves took Harper away. 
A little later, the sea brought him near the young man again, and he said, are you saved now? And, and Webb replied, no. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And then, losing his grip on the wood, Harper sank beneath the waves. And in the words of Webb, he said, there alone in the night, with two miles of water underneath me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. Webb was one of only seven people who were pulled from the icy waters and survived that disastrous night. But he provides us a glimpse with the, of the final moments of the life of John Harper. A memorial was erected by Paisley Road Baptist Church, and it contained these words. John Harper who well on a second gospel mission to the Moody Church, Chicago, was called to higher service from the deck of the ill-fated SS Titanic, faithful unto death. John Harper is a man worth emulating. He understood the power of the gospel and that the message of the gospel should be a priority in one's life. He was faithful unto death. He was concerned that people be right with God for their eternal salvation. And so I want us to take, take a few weeks and look at the stewardship of the truth and consider the power of the gospel. In considering the stewardship of truth, we must carefully discern the truth. We need to accurately define the truth, faithfully declare the truth, and boldly defend the truth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul states, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is good news. And we need to have that burden and boldness to share the good news. But the question I have for you this morning is, are you righteous? Are you right with God? Because you will be right with God only through receiving the finished work of Christ alone and by faith alone. That is the only way we can have this relationship. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. If you have your Bibles open to Romans 10, follow with me as I begin reading the first verse. We're going to read the first four verses. Romans 10 verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that as we look into your word, that we would be certain of our eternal destiny and the right relationship with you. And Lord, we pray that if there are those that do not have that, that your Holy Spirit would convict of sin this morning. And for those of us that have that hope, that we would be faithful in sharing the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. The message is vitally important to our eternal destiny. And that's what I want us to consider because you'll only be right with God through receiving the, the finished work of Christ by faith alone. There are several things I want us to see in this passage, though. The first one is the gospel advances by displaying genuine concern for others. Notice Paul's heart, brethren. He's actually writing to a primarily Gentile audience at Rome. He said, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. 
The need for humans to be right with God and the realization that they are not should motivate a genuine concern in us as believers for the souls of others. This paragraph of verses 1 through 4 unfolds in a series of logical steps as, as Paul is restating his deep desire for Israel's salvation. The first thing that we see is his concern is expressed with a heartfelt compassion. My heart's desire. Paul is distressed that his Jewish kinsmen are unsaved. You know, in, in some ways, Paul's compassion is, is noteworthy. You know, first of all, as we read in our, our scripture reading in 2 Timothy, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But he never lost his compassion for his own people. But it's also noteworthy, I think, because his Jewish kinsmen were not very friendly to Paul. They had caused Paul serious pain. In fact, much of the persecution that he faced when sharing the good news of the gospel came from his own kinsmen. I mean, if you read through Acts, you find this over and over. They attempted to murder him in Damascus shortly after his conversion, chapter 9. And then the conflict and persecution at Antioch in Pisidia, chapter 13. They, they attempted to stone him in Iconium. They actually stoned him in Lystra and left him for dead. He was assaulted at Thessalonica, arrested in the temple at Jerusalem. They tried to follow that up with an assassination attempt. He was slandered and falsely accused of treason. You know, at that point, you could think that Paul might just say, you know what, I've tried, and, and they deserve what they get. But that wasn't his heart. How do we respond when somebody rejects the gospel? When we try to share the good news, and, you know, maybe it's a coworker who mocks you. You don't really believe that stuff, do you? You know, maybe it's a family member who thinks you're in a cult. Because you go to church every week and multiple times. Maybe it's a classmate who accuses you of being an idiot because you believe the Bible. Paul expresses his concern to his Gentile readers that he takes no delight in the, the lost condition of the Gentiles. In fact, just the opposite is true. In fact, if you want to look across the page or over a page at chapter 9... Look at verse 1, as, as he lays it out, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the breth my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He said, my constant burden is for my relatives. I mean, this is an astonishing statement. That, that he is willing to be forsaken by Christ for his family members. I, I really think we see the heart of Christ in Paul. That Christ was forsaken by his Father for our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, and, and now Paul is saying, I'm willing to be separated for his, spirit, his physical family. Now, while that cannot take place... He has a burden for them. What he can do is he can pray. And so that heartfelt compassion is followed by an, a, a prayerful intercession. And we see that. He says, my, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they would be saved. He's praying to God for Israel. That, that his desire is that they would be saved. And I think it's significant. 
when you understand, and, and those of you that have studied theology and recognize that Romans 9 is one of the most powerful passages speaking to the sovereignty of God. But with that understanding, the proper understanding of God's sovereignty does not cause complacency or apathy. It does just the opposite. Understanding God's sovereignty drove Paul to pray fervently, to cry out to the ruler of the universe, that the light of the gospel would shine into his darkened countrymen's hearts. See, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not at odds. And we need to do what God calls us to do and commands us to do and let him take care of his part. He can handle it. But Paul knew that the salvation was of God, so he pours out his heart to the Lord for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, does our concern for the lost motivate us to pray? I I was really encouraged at our all-church prayer meeting Wednesday night that both of the men that led us in prayer before we broke up into groups mentioned that we prayed that we would be aware of those divine appointments. That we would recognize the gospel opportunities that, that the Lord brings across our path. And then the group I heard praying was specifically praying for certain individuals, some that have been prayed for for years. That's the heart of Paul. But when is the last time you prayed specifically for a lost individual. See, our heart compassion for the lost ought to motivate us to prayerful intercession for the souls of others. Because such a compassion and intercession will only be present when we recognize their true condition. And that's the third thing that we see. The concern is this awareness of the spiritual needs. What did they need? They needed to be saved. This is what's weighing on Paul's heart. His fellow Israelites were lost. They didn't know the saving, the Savior. They didn't have that saving knowledge. He wasn't concerned that they hadn't reached their full potential. He he wasn't concerned that that Rome was putting pressure on them or a lack of purpose in life or or they needed a better therapist in their life. He said, no, they needed a Savior. The good news ought to be conveyed through the love of Christ for souls of people who are trying to make life work without him. The deception of the devil. And we have to show the kindness that reflects the love of Christ. But we need to give the gospel with a firmness that doesn't allow deflecting the seriousness of the message. Because the good news will only be recognized as good news if a person sees his need. Are you saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And until you see the cross as something done by you, then you will never appreciate that the cross has been done for you. As John Stott said, if we don't understand that it is our sin that placed Christ on the cross, then we're not going to think we're that bad. Because the need for the gospel is rooted in in humanity's perilous condition. That really brings us to the second major point. The gospel is advanced by discerning the true condition of others. That we recognize that they are lost. And, and, and so Paul is bringing this out that, first of all, religious diligence is inadequate for righteousness. He's not minimizing that. He says they have a zeal for God. He didn't mim- minimize their religious commitment. In fact, he highlights their zeal as being part of the problem. They were absorbed in their religious tradition, in their performance, in, in doing things. 
The problem is that when a person works for their reward, then they, it's not by grace, it's the payment that's due. That's actually what Romans 4.4 4 says. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you work for righteousness, then you earn what you've worked for. And it's no longer a gift, but it's what is due. But we know that the Bible makes it clear that salvation is the gift of God. Ephesians tells us, for by grace you are saved through faith. It is a gift of God. It's not of works. Otherwise, we would boast. And so how many good works are needed to be holy, to get into heaven? They were zealous. There was a diligence, but there was also an ignorance. Religious ignorance hinders the true righteousness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That they were truly ignorant concerning God's righteousness. Now, why would somebody be ignorant and think they were right when they weren't? You know, I think there's a number of reasons. One might be family tradition. Well, they grew up in a religious home and it goes back centuries. It might even be tied to their ethnicity. And, and there's a certain religious persuasion. The Jews had thousands of years of religious tradition. And, and so family tradition, it might be spiritual philosophy. Well, they like to talk about spirituality. We hear a lot of that in our culture. But that doesn't mean they know Jesus as their personal Savior. It might be academic or head knowledge without any heart trust. You can grow up in church. You can, you can start in our nursery and go through Time for Tots and Tri-City Christian Academy and International Baptist College and somebody say, I've got all this knowledge. Is your soul saved? Because at the end of Romans 9, in verses 31 and 32, Paul notes that, that Israel was pursuing righteousness by the law, but not by faith. And it is not faith and keeping the law. It's not getting baptized. It's not memory verses in Awana. It's not praying a certain number of times a day. It's not making a pilgrimage. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And understand, this was a culpable ignorance. They were ignorant, but they were not excused. Why? Because they're trying to establish their own righteousness. And in doing so, they had refused to submit themselves. So the third thing we see is religious pride rejects the true righteousness. It says they, they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge because they have not submitted themselves. Now, I suspect that if you were to talk to one of the Jews that Paul was speaking of, they would have disagreed. They would have argued they had submitted themselves. Look at all the stuff they were doing. Their law-keeping proved they were submissive. They tithed, they fasted, they kept the extra-biblical Sabbath restrictions that the Pharisees had come up with. They, they provided sacrifices, they kept the holy days. I mean, talk about being submissive. Even their menu was dictated by the law. They didn't behave like the Gentiles. They couldn't enjoy a nice bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. They didn't get a nice lobster dinner. Their law, the law wouldn't allow it. And that's why chapter 9, verse 33 says this was a stumbling stone. They tripped over the idea that their works weren't adequate. You know, it takes humility to acknowledge that you were, that you are wrong. 
when, especially when it comes to something of this magnitude. It's actually traumatic. I mean, think back to the biblical illustration of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It, it, he was the religious teacher in Israel. That's what verse 10 says as Jesus asks him, are, are you not the teacher in Israel? And he's coming and, and he's talking to Jesus. He comes by night because he knows something is missing and, and, and the Lord tells him, you need to be born again. And he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Jesus is turning his religious philosophy, his religious world upside down. And that makes people upset. That makes them uncomfortable. When you give them the gospel, don't be surprised if they resist. Because pride keeps a person from acknowledging their lost condition. And the truth is, most people are more concerned about appearing righteous than actually being righteous. That is, they, they want other people to think they're doing okay rather than stopping and considering what God really sees. I mean, we've heard testimonies of this. Some of our people, I mentioned you grew up in church. We've had students at, at IBCS who have trusted the Lord as their personal Savior as students. And they said one of the battles was everybody thought I was a Christian. Yeah, we're concerned what people think. But they realized that God knew better. But we want people to think well of us. I deserve to be heard. I demand respect. I, I, I want to be in charge. I want to call the shots. I want to make my own decisions. I want to be treated like an adult. Do we say, I want to be right with God? The reason we make excuses for our behavior is because we want to appear righteous. Well, you know, you have to understand, I was tired. Well, they caught me at a bad time. Well, I'm not going to let somebody push me around. We don't say, I'm selfish and sinful and want my own way. <laughs> because that doesn't look good. But what we need to say is, Lord, I want to submit all that I am to all that you are. So that the gospel will go forth. We have to discern the true condition. Thirdly, we, the gospel advances by distinguishing the religion of works from the righteousness of Christ. There's a significant distinction between verses 3 and 4, and it's really the key to proclaiming the gospel, and especially to people who are seeking to establish their own righteousness. The opening chapters of Romans have, have built the case that we're all guilty, that there's no one righteous. And it starts by, as Paul lays it out, that the Gentiles and the Jews would say, yeah, that's true, they're, they're, they're not righteous. And then he brings it to them. That there's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one does good, not one. That's chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. And so Paul is burdened for his Israelites because there's really two kinds of righteousness. The first one is self-righteousness. That I'm going to establish my own righteousness. I can do it myself. Now we, a couple of weeks ago we were keeping four of our grandkids as Christopher and Kimberly were, were out of town for a, a wedding. And, and I, I was trying to buckle one of our, our granddaughters into her car seat. And, and she was resisting and said, I, I can do it myself. Well, no, she couldn't because she was sitting on the piece that needed to be buckled into. <laughs> and so she's resisting my helping her, saying she can do it herself when she couldn't. But you know, the truth is, we think we can do our own righteousness. And it's our very position of sinfulness that keeps us from doing it. 
And so some people think they can, they can establish their own. If I'm good enough, God will accept me. But I think more often people tend to think that God grade, grades on the curve. That, that I'm not as bad as other people. And so when I get to heaven and I lay out my good works and I'm not like those other people, then, then God will accept me because obviously nobody's perfect. You know, I haven't committed the really bad sins. And isn't that what we hear from people so often? You know, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, if you were with us when we looked at the Ten Commandments, we realized even the heart of hate was murder. But you know, that whole idea of thinking I'm good enough is like letting the inmates in prison take a poll on the sentencing guidelines that the judge used. There's a little bit of a bias there. You know, that, well, I think that judge was unfair that he gave me the sentence he did. And, and don't the rest of the prisoners agree? It's like, you know, is there a little bias? And failure to understand that the standard is the holiness of God? Guilty criminals tend to be biased against the law. The law is the righteous standard. And sinners tend to be biased against the righteousness of God. Because in our proud self-esteem, rebellion, we want to think we're better than other people. And that's why we have to see the cross as something that we did, rather than just something that was done for us. There's the self-righteousness. The other kind, though, is the righteousness completed in Christ alone. And the difference between the righteousness of Christ and all the other kinds is that He has done it. And that's verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That, that He has done it. That every religious system in the world is either trying to do something or sees it as done. And most of the religions are you have to do more. If my good works outweigh my bad works, if I make this pilgrimage, if I do these sacraments, if I'm baptized, if I join the church, then, then I'll be okay. I have two words written in one of my Bibles. I don't usually write in my preaching Bible, but I have next to verse 3, I have the word written doing. And next to verse 4, I have written done. Because that's the difference. How long do you do something until it's done? How long did you drive to church this morning? Until you got here. And then you're done. Hopefully you parked and just didn't keep driving. Because it's done. And the difference between the two kinds of righteousness is the difference between doing and done. Now, if, if you were with us back in June, I, I gave a, the church a report on a Sunday evening about our, our trip to Hong Kong and Singapore and Malaysia where uh, we had the opportunity to visit with James Yoon and Chris Churn. And I, I mentioned we had a flight fiasco. When we got to the counter to fly from Hong Kong to Singapore, the airline had no record of our, our itinerary. Actually, they had our itinerary getting to Hong Kong and leaving Singapore. They didn't have our flight from Hong Kong to Singapore. And so we ended up having to purchase four one-way tickets at the airport to get from Hong Kong to Singapore. And since that time, I've been working with the airline to get a refund because they messed up our flight. And so I have spent more time in the last four months interacting with the exchange rate on the Hong Kong dollar than I ever imagined doing. Because the cost of those four tickets in Hong Kong dollars was just over $18,200. Hong Kong dollars. 
Now, in American money, that's just under $2,400, which is still a lot for four tickets, but not nearly $18,000. Well, the, the refund arrived this week. And after all this time working back and forth, I got that check, signed it over to our business office, and, and so it, it's exciting that that's finally done. But, but suppose instead of sending a check, I had gotten a parcel post with 18200 Hong Kong dollars. And I got that and I opened it up to say, this is great, I'm going shopping. And so I went out to the mall, I went to the new Shields store, because I know they've got stuff I'm going to want to buy. And I, I loaded up my cart, and I get up to the counter, and he starts ringing it up, and I'm all excited, and I pull out 18,000 Hong Kong dollars. What do you think is going to happen at that point? I'm going to get this really funny look from the cashier. And, and if I just kind of stand there, at some point he's going to say something like, I'm sorry, but we won't accept these. And I could say, well, why not? It's real money. It's not counterfeit. I just got them. They've just been delivered, and, and I'm willing to pay. And, and it's been a lot of work to get this money here. And what's he going to tell me? We don't accept that currency. My concern is that there may be somebody here that is going to show up at the gates of heaven. And when God says, why should I let you into heaven? You're going to pull out the dollars of your own efforts. And you may have a big stack of your good works. And you think that currency of righteousness is going to work, and you're wrong. Because Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And we can pull out all this currency of good works, our righteousnesses, and it's like filthy rags to get into heaven. This is why we need to be sharing the good news with others. Christ saved sinners by dying for sinners. He fulfilled the law both by His righteous life and then he fulfilled the penalty for lawbreakers by his sacrificial death. So Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He did the righteous life and he paid the righteous price. So it's Jesus, thy blood, and righteousness. And that is the only acceptable currency to get into heaven. So are you righteous this morning? Are you saved? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? You'd say, yes, I have done that. I've tr put my faith in Christ alone. I, I have that confidence. Then are you sharing the good news? Can we be like John Harper asking Aguila Webb, man, are you saved? Well, they might resist me. That's okay. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Paul was treated badly and he said, my heart's desire, my prayer for Israel to God is that they would be saved. You know, understanding most of us were not saved the first time we heard the gospel. Some of you really resisted it. And resisted it over and over. And there was a hostility and an arrogance until the Holy Spirit got a hold of your heart. 
So who are you praying for that they will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? We need to pray, we meet people, and we tell them about Jesus. When's the last time you prayed specifically for someone's salvation? What we need to understand is the gospel is only good news to a person if it gets there in time. If John Harper had not shared that good news in those icy waters with Aguila Webb, the good news would not have impacted his life. And so applicationally, it's good news when it arrives in time. And in God's sovereignty, He has given us the opportunity and responsibility as sinners saved by grace to share the message with others. That's actually why the church is here today. Because God has given us a mission. And that it would advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will be right with God only through receiving the finished work of Christ alone. So are you saved today? Let's look to the Lord in prayer.